Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this week's episode of the Big Footy Bomber Cast. I'm your host, Sponsor34. And as always, I am joined by the Grizz. How are you this evening? I'm good. I'm good. A big win on the weekend. And I don't just mean the men's. A couple of really big wins on the weekend from, I think, all four of our Essendon sides, which is fantastic. Yeah, so we will jump straight into the VFLW as a bit of a bit of a change of pace um, from the AFL. We'll come to that later. The VFLW, the women are into the grand final. So they are, of course, on the weekend. And um, belted Casey in the second yeah, semifinals. Wow. The final score for those that are unaware was 11 10 76 to 1 3 9. And Casey actually scored. <laughs> Casey scored three points in the first quarter and then didn't score again until they kicked their first major in the last. So we actually held them scoreless for two quarters. It was it was a close Yeesh. game at quarter time. It was seven to three until we uh, we put on the burners in that second second quarter and then just never they never again uh, recovered. Did Casey? So so we do play them in two weeks time. So they of course um, will be into the preliminary final that I'm talking about Casey now obviously they are into the preliminary final this weekend where against they... the Saints yes so yeah. and it's, it's not technically not Saint Kilda it's the, they call themselves the Southern Saints who I believe they are still affiliated obviously with the St Kilda yep. Football Club but they they are um yeah they're, they're not they it's sort of like the Casey Demons I suppose are affiliated with so yeah. so for anyone interested now Interestingly, last time we played Casey, we actually beat him by a goal. So I think the result, whilst exciting, I don't think it was a, a totally unexpected. I've actually read that there's um, quite a few VFL sides, VFLW sides, have lost a number of AFLW players because obviously the AFLW season is coming later this year. So the yep. finals, unfortunately, sides like Casey and Hawthorne, amongst others, have lost a couple of players for the VFLW. But but we haven't seemed to have done that. I think that's largely because a lot of our VFLW girls are going to play for our AFLW. So we're just we're just going to build the confidence. So yeah. <laughs> just we, go uh, from a, a VFL. W premiership into an AFLW premiership. But um, the, the girls have been rock solid all year. When I say rock solid, I mean on top of the ladder with a percentage of 362. So they've been absolutely um, smacking the living daylight out of their opposition in their straight to the grand final by this week, I think. is They're not playing them in this week. It's obviously, like you said, Casey and St Kilda. But yes. uh, well done to the girls. It's good to see at least one Eston team pulling their weight and uh, up to the top of the ladder where uh, we like to see them. Yeah, so uh, the Saints will be an interesting one because we did draw with the Saints earlier in the year and then we beat them by 10 points, I believe, in the... Mm. Yeah. The, the return fixture. So, you know, and it was good to see um, Georgia Nance Garwin, amongst others, she, she led the way with, with, you know, with, with 25 disposals. She's obviously going to play for our AFLW side. And I think she, we, we sort of tipped that she may be the first ever AFLW captain as well. Frederica Frew kicked three again, another player that's going to end up playing for our AFLW side. So it is good to see the AFLW listed players dominate, I suppose, on the big stage in preparation for, for the upcoming season. Yeah, it, 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 I, I must profess, I, I, I keep a, a loose eye on it. Law, who's a, another one of our mods, um, lives and breathes the, AF, the VFLW. So I've been sort of living it vicariously through uh, her a little bit. But um, no, nah, like I said, it's great to, for the girls to have a reward and, and get through to the grand final and, uh, we might need to get um, see if we can get Laura or um, a crowded house back for a bit of a preview next week. Yeah, so we will hopefully discuss that a little bit more next week to the preview once we know who exactly they are playing. And also, we'll have our celebratory podcast after they win the flag, of course. <laughs> but but we Aye. will 
Grizz, we will turn to the AFL now, and it was a very, very surprising Essen that turned up for three and a half quarters on Friday night. And I say for three and a half quarters because for the first half of the third quarter, it looked like they'd reverted to the form we'd seen in previous weeks. Oof. Yeah, look, it was a it was a rough first 15 minutes that third quarter. I was sort of, I was sitting there dreading, thinking, oh, they're not going to come back, are they, at halftime? And they did, but uh, credit to the lads uh, for fighting back. I think they kicked five straight and we kicked the next six. So it was a, it was a weird old game. St Kilda looked like they, they'd forgotten to rock up and we sort of jumped them to begin with. But um, yeah, really surprising result. Happy to win. I would like to put my hand up and, and sincerely apologise to Brett Rutten, uh, oh, sorry, Ben Rutten for trashing his selections on Thursday night. Turns out they were inspired. Um, I thought our defence held up really well, won enough one-on-ones and having sort of smaller, faster players around um, the ground seemed to work because we were able to put enough pressure around the ball that they'll sort of knock great inside 50s for St Kilda. And then our smaller, more mobile back line just sort of waltzed it out. And all of a sudden, St Kilda looked a bit top-heavy at times between sort of Marshall and, and King and Membry and um, Ryder. And, you know, who knows? Worked, but Jane Laverde and Jordan Ridley specifically played fantastic roles in defence. But um thought our midfield stood up. I thought Caldwell and Shield were fantastic. Caldwell specifically. Like, he didn't have huge disposal numbers. But I'm just looking at this. He had... 13 contested possessions. He had seven clearances, seven tackles, all of which were game highs. Um, he was fantastic. And Dylan Shield was back to his best. So, you know, when your midfield's on top and your defence is winning their one-on-ones, it just makes a world of difference. Yeah. Oh, look, we can discuss this in a little bit of detail because you've sort of raised it now. And that is, of course, our decision to not pick a key, a noted key position defender. I mean, don't get me wrong. The Verde is, a, is, a, is now a, a defender, but he's certainly, I don't think, I still don't think he's tall enough to take on Max King if St Kilda's delivery had been anywhere what we'd seen yeah. for the rest yeah. of the year. So, so I, I'm look, I'm still bemused, puzzled by our decision to not play a key position defender. I think you know dropping Zachary, I thought was was pretty stiff. Um, if it was to bring in someone like Zach Thatcher or even Cody Brandt, then you know I'd, I'd understand. We're giving everyone a shot, but to, to drop him and, and not bring anyone in at all against what it was a very tall St Kilda forward line was was something that was. I mean, we, he really did roll the dice truck. And to his credit, you know, the, the winners the winners write history, as they say. But I don't think you can completely dismiss the concerns that we had when those teams came out. Yeah, I, 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 in hindsight, I, I think it was probably a circuit breaker in that, look, what we're, what we're doing isn't working as a whole. We need to generate more bounce-off halfback. So this was sort of the nuclear option to produce that. So when you have McGrath as a full-time defender, and can we just leave him there forever? Can we, can we, can we give up on the midfield thing? But when you've got Redmond and McGrath and Hyde and Massimo, Dembrosa, and we'll get to him in a minute, he was fantastic on debut. There was just a lot of bounce out of defence, which got our ball movement game going and sort of got our attack going. So it was really just about can Laverty and Ridley win enough 1v1s to allow a smaller defence to walk it out in the manner and we did. Um, but I do agree that long-term, I don't think it's a strategy you could probably pull off if you play no-key defenders against Geelong or against a team like Brisbane. You're probably going to get absolutely belted because they move the ball far better. 
as good as our pressure was, St Kilda's inability to deal with it was appalling. Yeah, um, they were very bad. Yeah, I just for a side that has gone out and recruited in the manner that St Kilda has done, and it's to me, it's a path that I think many Essendon fans probably hoped that we were going to follow at one stage. And I'm talking about going out and getting the you know the Brad Hills, um, the Crouch, the Paddy Ryder, the Membry. <laughs> Well, not so much memory, I suppose, but you, you know what I mean. They've gone out. They've gone out. Yeah. And got some of these yeah, old, yeah. these older players. Even Hanbury, although you know, I mean, Hanbury's probably the worst pickup of all time at, at the moment. Yeah. Um, that might be the worst recruit of the last six years. Yeah. It, if anyone ever feels bad about giving up two first round picks for Dylan Shield, just remember we didn't pay eight hundred dollars for Hanbury to do rehab and never yeah. play. So, you know, I just look at St Kilda and go. They should be top four. And their list profile screams, this is their chance now. And we obviously hadn't been that great. And literally, yep. they obviously didn't expect Essendon to turn up. And then when Essendon turned up and put the pressure on, they fell apart. And, yep. and the other problem I had, they had was when they did come back in that third quarter and they started to front run and look like they were going to run over the top, the second that Essendon sort of took the the pace off the game again, controlled the ball and then counter-attacked, they fell apart again. It was just that little bit of pressure from a side that hasn't really been that great this year. And, and St Kilda just yeah, had no answers, which was just embarrassing. Yeah, so I, I had this thought watching them. And, I, and we'll, we'll get to some positives in a minute, Essendon fans, don't worry. But um, I had the thought that they they reminded me of us in 2017. So you had the Mercurial young forward in King who was sort of mirror of Danaher, you have enough good soldiers in defence. You have a pretty good ruck combination. You've got a midfield, which is probably just, you know, if you think about our 2017 midfield of Watson and Heppel and the young Zach Merritt and stuff, we were just probably, we were two to three good players short of actually doing anything that year. And we tried to go out and get those players, which is what St Kilda's sort of fa- tried to do but failed. And so there's a bit of 2017 Essendon about them for me. And I wonder what their ceiling is. I don't think they're a top four team on, uh, looking at their list. Now, granted, they're missing a few players. They're missing Jack Steele, who's an out-and-out gun. Zach Jones is a handy player for them, and he's only a couple of weeks back. Like, you know, they've got a bit of cattle to come back. But I don't really see them as a top four team, but even as a top eight team, that's not what they dished up against us. They they looked like they were, you know, in the bottom four or five on the ladder where we are, to be honest, the way their sort of effort started. But I wanted to ask you about our forward line. Um, How does it feel for you to have finally what looks like to be a semi-functional forward line set up? I mean, between Wright and um, Jones and uh, Stringer up there, all of a sudden, we just look a bit more composed, a bit more structured ahead of the footy. Yeah, and I think that was always going to be somewhat of the case. And I think we've sort of leveled that off before that, you know, if they, because we've said all along, have to play two rucks because you'd see the kick at the peat or there's nothing to kick to. So then you put in, yeah. you know, Harrison Jones and, you, and, and your Jake Stringer, and you're right, you do all of a sudden have a couple more targets to hit up. Um, even, even Sammy Draper's now somehow discovered that he can actually go forward. Now, Draper. <laughs> 
Draper's still not getting a lot of the ball around the ground. I know a lot of people see that he, you know, he gets and he does that ugly kick forward, and they—that's all they remember. They don't remember that for the other three and a half quarters he barely touches it. But yeah, the, last, right. the last couple of weeks, he has actually managed to push forward. You know, he clunked that mark and kicked the goal. He got that got that free kick in the in the goal square, obviously, and kicked the one to go the two that he kicked the week before against Carlton. So he's actually starting, I think, to realise that just winning you know, 35 hit-outs isn't enough. Like you, you need to yep. be able to do a little bit more. And I think, I also think that, you know, having Phillips in the ruck does sort of allow him to do that. Because if you look at the hit-outs, you know, Draper only, and I say only had 15 because I said he'd been going at 30-odd hit-outs beforehand. But the fact that he was able to go forward and rest and be another target up forward, it, it just gives us another string to our bow. And, and look, I still think, Nick Bryan was incredibly stiff. And I think that what you said originally about bringing um, Phillips in is a short-term measure to win games. I think that still stands true. But I'd agree. I do like seeing Draper not have to be the man for, for you know, 95% of the four quarters. Because the problem we had was when we were just playing Draper and Wright, if Wright was the one going in the ruck to give Draper the chop out, then Draper was going forward, which means that Draper was still the man, but just yeah. a different part of the ground. And I just don't think he can do that for four quarters. His tank still probably isn't there to be the work. And you know, he may not ever be that type of ruckman. He doesn't like, he may not be ever be the workhorse ruckman, the Todd Gold scene that can play 80% game time in the ruck and, and get through there because he's such an aerobic athlete, right? Draper looks far more of a, an explosive type player. Shane both, you know, Yeah, Shane Mumford. No, not it. He's far more athletic than Shane Mumford oh. ever was. Oh. Like, yeah, no, no I, I, I think he's far more explosive than Shane Mumford was. I think he, he's far more... I think him playing 50% ruck time is really his sweet spot, which is why Brian's development is crucial, I think. Because if you can play both of those guys and they can switch forward bench, then I think between... Whereas, you know, Brian might end up be that workhorse Ruckman that wants 90% game time. So, who knows? But he may never be that aerobic athlete. But I would I would take what he did on the weekend. If he if you said every week he's going to... Not necessarily the two goals, but more the the presenting and the physicality forward to centre and the marking, I'd take that, I'd take that performance every week from Sammy Draper um, at, at this point in his career, obviously getting better. But I think the last few weeks he's sort of found a bit of form and it's all been about his aggressiveness, both in the contest on the ground and his tackling, but more importantly, you know, at least just crashing packs in the air. And that's his one word at the moment is his size and his aggressiveness. Yeah, look, I, I, when I say Shane Mumford, I don't, obviously he's got that that burst of pace and can bounce the ball, which obviously Mumford doesn't do it. I mean, I'll be honest, I don't think Draper... I, Draper does that occasionally. He doesn't do it all that often. I, I mean, the clumsy, no, yeah. the clumsy aggression is very much Shane Mumford. Yeah. And, I, and I think that is what Sammy is. I don't think he's a targeted aggression. I think, I, think we'll, I, think the more, I think the more bumps he puts on, we'll start to see the occasional suspension because the big man got a little clumsy yeah. and just crushed the little bloke. But even I think Mumford's not a bad comparison though, in the sense that Mumford never Mumford didn't play his best football when he was the one out ruckman. He always seemed to play his best when you know Geelong were playing him and I don't know Mark Blake or him and another ruckman with him, like him and Mark Blitzabs or him and 
you know, insert second Ruckman in there. And so there might be a bit of credence to that, which is probably why Nick Bryan, and we keep saying it is so crucial as a prospect. And oh, I think you and I are on the same boat. The quicker we can get Bryan and Draper in together for a, a long stint of time, the better. So there must be a reason why they don't think Bryan is, is up to, um, you know, 20 weeks of AFL football at this point. But, you know, who knows? Um, I did want to ask you about two young guys who who played this week. One made his debut in Massimo D'Ambrosio, who, who looked like he had played about 100 games. And the other one was Ben Hobbs, who uh, 22 disposals in the rising star knob this week. Both really impressive. Um, Hobbs seems to have taken that half-forward flank role with a, both hands and said, okay, I'm not playing midfield, but I'm in the I'm in the seniors. I'm just going to sort of attack it as best I can. And D'Ambrosio has run off half-back as that mosquito fleet come as a defence um, was sort of crucial at different points. I'll, I'll, I'll answer that. So I will just point out, though, you did say uh, Mark Blitzarves for Shane Mumford. Shane Mumford actually left the Cats in 2009, well before Blitzarves ever got there, Grizz. But um, I, you, you were right. He does he does generally play well with the second Ruckman. I just that, thought, who am I, I thinking of then? I don't know. Anyway, regardless. <laughs> it's the bloke who um, the bloke who cried after the 2007. Um, Mark, Mark Blake. Blake. Is yeah, I did say Mark Blake. Is it Mark yeah. Blake? As well. Oh, anyway. Anyway, moving on. Um, look, D'Ambrosio, the, the, the I thought, was very good. Some of his kicks were just ridiculous. There was one there, I think, at one stage, he took the ball and, and, and he kicked it sideways. And, and I was watching the game with... I was actually watching the game on my phone at, a, at, at the local RSL because they didn't have the TV. And me, me and my father and father-in-law were there as a, uh, for a birthday. So he actually kicked it across ground and both of them went, oh, they kick it across ground. But he was actually threaded the needle sort of almost perfectly and he and hit, he hit whoever it was in the chest. And I apologise, I can't remember who it was because um, it's, it's not easy to watch the game on the phone all the time. But yeah, like stuff like that, his kicks were just... Were just really good at times. He looked polished. He looked shy. He looked like he had all the all the time in the world. Um, I am wary of pumping him up too much because he does have that new player shine on him still. Um, yep, that's fair. In that you know we love him because he was new and he did something different and and he was in a game. He was involved in a game that we won, so everybody automatically looks better. But he he, he did. I think provide a perfect foil for Nick Hind because our game plan this year has seemed to be either give it to Nick Hind to run or we move incredibly slowly. And you and I talked about that in preseason that we were actually celebrating the fact that we weren't just expecting Hind to run and gun it at all the time. But by throwing that extra option down there, obviously it then meant that Hind was able to run and gun it and, and have some coverage. And it also meant that Mason Redmond was able to be a little bit more daring and attacking with the ball. So so I thought he was definitely a great inclusion into the side. I- interesting stat. Nick Hind's actually second for bounces taken this season behind Adam Saad, which... Yep, I believe you know, that. Which, you know, considering that Nick Hind has had a quiet season by his standards compared to last year, that's still an incredible stat that, and considering how slow we've moved the ball, you know, it does show that he's still trying to take the game on at times. So it's, 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 so I just wanted to point that out because I think that's an incredible shout out to him. Uh, in terms of Ben Hobbs, how much better would he look if he had a left foot? Just yeah, oh, just quietly. Oh, Jakey Stringer yeah. might want to take might want to take him down um to about 15, 20 meters out from goal and just show him how to swing onto the left and kick it because oh. if he had a left if he had a left footer, he would have kicked four goals on Friday night. Oh, that that drove me nuts. And, and, I, and I only point out Stringer because literally about two and a half minutes later, Stringer picked the ball up, went to go on his right, and went, "Oh shit, I'm being smothered over here. I'll just casually swing onto my left and nurse it through the goals." 
Do you reckon the coaches would have said that to him after the game, mate? Where's your left foot? But oh, I think, yeah, we, yeah. Look, so clearly he's he's nineteen. He's got plenty that he can work on. But I thought, um, yeah, yeah, no, he's twenty two touches. You know, which was which was which was really good. He he managed to. The other thing that he he um, did well for mine was the inside fifties. You know, he had four inside fifties, which was really good. Of his twenty two touches that he had. Only five of them were contested. So it does show that I think what you're saying is right. He, he's taken that half forward role. He, and it, it's funny because I, I still remember him being in a lot of contested space. And I think he looked like he had all the time in the world. So I'd be, I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if some of those 17 uncontested possessions were uncontested because he made them uncontested, if that makes sense. Yeah. His, his hands at ground level are yeah. really good. Very clean. Like, so if you can pick the ball up one touch in a contest, it looks like you've got more time because you literally do. You're not stopping, bending over, picking it up or fumbling it, which costs you half a second, which invites the pressure. And so when you're really clean below your knees, which he is, um, he looks he looks um, really good. Just with D'Ambrosio, I think he looks good. So there's his sacred effective disposal. So it's more it's better than disposal efficiency because... With disposal efficiency, if you kick it 45 metres plus and provided the other team doesn't intercept market, it's deemed an effective disposal. So this effective disposal set looks at how many targets did you hit? So he had six, he had 15 disposals, D'Ambrosio, and of those 15, 12 were deemed effective disposal uh, disposals. So with his 15 touches, he hit the target on 12 of them, which which is really good. Like you think about, okay, so he's run out of basically 90% efficiency. <laughs> which is yeah. um, pretty good for a first gamer. But yeah, I thought they were both really good. I think Hobbs was rising star on this week, wasn't he? He did. He got it this week. So um, Ambrosio probably consider himself a little bit stiff. But the other young player I do want to talk about is a man actually spent the least amount of time on the ground for an Essendon player. And it might surprise you to find out that was Jai Caldwell, considering the impact he had on the game. I thought... Oh, he was outstanding. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, we said earlier in the... Oh, actually, well, I said... I'll, I'll pat myself on the back. I said earlier in the year after the preseason that if he continued on the vein we saw in the preseason, that we'd understand why GWS had cracked the shits about how he was coming across. <laughs> Yeah. And I think we saw, yeah, I think we definitely saw on, on Friday night the play that GWS thought they had. So, yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to him. But we'll just quickly move away from the specific itself. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, just, and, I'll just, sorry, with Caldwell, I just want to run through the stats again. So, he had 23 disposals, which wasn't the highest on the ground. But his tackles, contested possessions and clearances all led the field. So, he didn't get the 35 or the 31 touches that Jack Sinclair or Jade Gresham got, but he was winning at the coalface. And we, we won the ruck contest and we won the clearances. And that's, you know, St. Kilda couldn't get their game going with their dual rucks, which they love to get going. And that's why I think we won the game. We jumped them to begin the game. Talking of clearances, and this sort of leads in nicely to what I'm about to, to say, and it's, it's the elephant in the room at the moment, I think, for the Essendon Football Club, and it's an elephant in the room that's only going to keep getting louder, and there are a lot of people out there. And look, I mentioned this somewhere other than our board on, on Friday night, Saturday morning, and it was like I shot Bambi, and that is that Dylan Shield had 25 disposals, seven clearances, five tackles, looked like a star. He looked like the player that we spent two draft picks on, and yep. largely it came about because Darcy Parrish did not play. <laughs> yep. Okay. So the elephant um, in the room at the Eston Football Club at the moment is how do you get Dylan Shield, Darcy Parrish, 
Jai Caldwell and even Zach Merritt all on the same page, all able to get enough midfield minutes that they can all successfully contribute to the game. So just to be really clear, so I saw you posted a sort of a cryptic post on the Darcy Parish set after the game, like, oh, this, well, 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 this could be interesting or something. And it launched into this, should we trade Parish <laughs> uh, hypothetical? Where do you stand on the trade Parish bandwagon? Just, just for, just to put our hand, put our cards on the table. Yeah, look, the problem is, the problem with trading someone like Darcy Parrish is Darcy Parrish is an insanely good footballer. And, mm-hmm. and we've said before that, you know, he's had the Tom Mitchell game, so to speak, where he had 40 disposals and didn't do much with it. But at the end of the day, he still got his hand on the ball 40, 40 times. And you can't do that unless you're a good player. But, yep. you know, Nathan Buckley, you know, I didn't even notice Tom Mitchell played. Yeah, he, he tore them apart. So the problem with trading somebody like Darcy Parrish is he's an insanely good midfielder. And you do mm. not trade insanely good players unless you get something back. So the only the only possible way I could ever see us trading Darcy Parrish would be if it was to get somebody like a Josh Dunkley or, dare I say, a Tom Green from <laughs> I said Tom, not Toby, from GWS. You know that. Wouldn't, I wouldn't mind Toby. Like if if we were to get Toby Green, that would be bad. Oh, yeah, but I still want to trade a different player to Darcy, so you wouldn't be trading him. The only way yeah. you trade Darcy Paris is if you can get a, a replacement into that midfield that will be basically ready to go right now and will essentially make the balance of the midfield better. Because, because look, you take Darcy Parrish out, you put Josh Dunkley or you put Tom Green into that midfield. I don't think our midfield is worse off. I think it's better off. I think the balance is better. I think we have that inside bull that we've been crying out for so long. The problem I've got for trading Darcy Parrish when you're talking about it, and, and so trading Darcy Parrish in isolation, only if you can get something like that. The problem with trading Darcy Parrish out to get Dylan Shield into the game more is that Dylan Shield will be 30 years old next year. So it is the most short-sighted move of all time to trade out a, a Darcy Parrish who's going to be a gun for the next six years to get maybe one or two good seasons out of Dylan Shield. Okay. Yep. So... For the record, my position on uh, Dylan Shield and Darcy Parrish can only play well when the other one isn't in the team is a position that lacks nuance. So I would argue that over the last two to three weeks, the entire um, mix of our midfield has changed generally. So, you know, we, we started the year with Merritt, Parrish, Shield, McGrath, Caldwell with Parrish and whoever Martin chipping in at different points. Since that time, McGrath's basically gone back to a full-time defender, which is where he belongs. Merritt is starting in the center circle, but he's then transitioning to like this halfback quarterback role, basically halfway between the center circle and the center halfback line. Playing is sort of, you know, the money kick at the moment is not the kick to go deep inside 50. It's a kick before that, the transition from defence into your attacking half. And so he's sitting there sort of at the quarterback, halfway between center backs and the circle, as that kick forward to set us up. And so he's not actually playing a lot in the contest, which is you don't really want him there because he's such an elite kick. You don't want him digging the football, ferreting the football at the bottom of a pack. So we haven't seen enough football, I think, to know whether Shield and Parrish can exist together the way our midfield and the, we set the ground up currently over the last few weeks because Parrish has been injured and Shield's been playing well, obviously. We have enough of a body of work to know that that five I mentioned before being Merritt, 
Shield, Parrish, McGrath, Caldwell as a five-man mix lacks balance. But what does it look like with McGrath as a defender, Merritt playing more of an outside sort of sweeping wing role, like I said, and sort of Martin and Perkins and Stringer chipping in at centre bounces, but then going forward again? We don't know. So before we even entertain trading Darcy Parrish or Dylan Shield, I want to see how that works first for the next nine weeks, eight weeks, whenever Darcy gets back. So that's how I feel about the the Shield can only play well if Par- that Parrish isn't there and Parrish can only play well if, Dar- if Shield isn't there. I think that, that as a one-for-one one sort of evaluation lacks nuance. So I'll, I'll start there. But in terms of the trade, so you trade Parrish, re- th- there's a list of seven players in my mind which are untradeable. Basically, if someone calls up and says what it would take for this person, you hang up the phone. It's just not happening, right? Those seven players are Cox, Perkins, Reed, Hobbs, Merritt, Jones, and Ridley. Okay? So they're the untradeables. The next rung of player is... I need a godfather offer. So like, yes, we would possibly trade them, but we would need to overwhelmingly win the deal and Parrish is in that boat of if we're going to trade Darcy Parrish, we're going to have to get an offer where we look at it and go, wow, okay. <laughs> that's going to be really hard to turn down. And that's two first round picks. Not necessarily two top tens, but two first round picks, for example. But even then there's a risk because you pick someone in the top 10 or somewhere in the first round, hoping, like you said, that there'll be a gun like Darcy Parrish's. So, so you're taking a step back, really, unless you use those picks to pick up another person. If the, if the strategy was, okay, we're going to get two really good picks for Parrish and then we sign Angus Brayshaw on a really you know heavily fronted back-end, front-ended deal because we've got a bazillion caps, dollars in cap space, I'd get it. Because that balances up the midfield, you know, we, we, we keep some experience and we get some picks to, you know, use in other areas of the ground. But I think that's all entirely really premature. And I think we need to get to the end of the year and see how the midfield mix, you know, works over an entire season. Um, if we're going to trade one of them, I would still, like you said, trade Shield over Parish because of the age thing. But you're going to get better offers for Parish, especially as a pre-agent. But... I think any talk of trade at the moment is really premature and it sort of lacks nuance until we know what it looks like, the way we're setting the ground up differently over the last month. Yeah, and as I said, I'm only trading parishes if you get in a like-for-like replacement now. You can't do it. Yeah. And, and the reality is if we, if we do want to get someone like a Josh Dunkley or a Tom, um, Tom Green or, or, you know, take another inside bull that we need to trade for, if you want to trade them, we have to get rid of somebody that gets us the currency to do it because we cannot, cannot trade our first round draft picks because they are far more valuable to us right now. Oh, pick three's off the table. Any deal, so, whether it's, any deal whether the opposition says pick threes, we want pick three, then you walk away. It's not worth it. Like, no. I, I agree completely. Oh, look, the, the final thing I'll say is part of the reason why we look so much better, and a lot of people are going, oh, you know, we looked better because we didn't have Darcy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the reason, but a part of the main part of the reason we looked so good on, on Friday night was because they obviously have midfield ran the other way. You know, Caldwell, Merritt, Shield, you know, they all laid tackles. They all put pressure on. They all did stuff they hadn't done before. And, and Parrish being there doesn't stop Dylan Shield, doesn't stop Zach Merritt, doesn't stop, yeah, you know, Ben Hobbs, Joe Caldwell, whoever else you want to throw him, doesn't stop them from laying tackles. So, yeah, 100%. So, so, you know, just so pointing to the game and going, we looked better without Darcy is very simplistic. But yeah, as I said, it's interesting and it's going to be the elephant in the room, I think, for a while until it's resolved. 
can Darcy yeah. and, and Dylan play in the same side? But Grizz, that will do us for this evening, mate. It's uh, it, it's been a good chat as always. We didn't actually get to our our best twenty two of twenty two line this week. We did get a couple of nominations for the half back line, but but we'll save that till next week and hope that we get a few more during the week. Yeah, hoping so. But um, I, I I'm really hoping um we can we can back up um this week against West Coast. West Coast have gotten a few good players back and they've got possibly they've definitely got Liam Ryan. They might be getting Nick Ant Newey back this week. But I'm really keen to see whether um we can back up that performance with another win. Because in reality, um this is an entirely winnable game for us and I, I think we should be going all out to win it. Absolutely, especially since uh, pick one is on the line for the Eagles. So who knows if they'll be going all out to win it. But but thank you once again. And as always, guys, um, please remember to like, subscribe and comment on the podcast on all your socials so that we know, A, that you're listening and B, what you would like to hear in future episodes.